always forgiven, always accepted, no fear of judgment before your throne. That's a powerful line. Getting rid of guilt is big business today. You've got self-help books on how to, how to forgive yourself and get past issues from, from what has happened in your, in your life. Uh, counseling practices exist and subsist with uh, much discussion of what has occurred and how to forgive those who have wronged you. But that song that we just sang speaks volumes about peace. Far more than self-help books or psychologists can do because it addresses <clears throat> the, the possibility of being guiltless in the eyes of God. And that's amazing to know that so that you can go about your days absolutely absolved of guilt, totally forgiven by the one who judges sin, and then in, part, in turn being able to share that forgiveness with, with those around you, to be able to share that freedom and the peace that you experience through that forgiveness. So rather than turning to self-help books and turning to counselors, let's turn to the Word of God this morning, Mark chapter 2. Verse 1, and we're going to look at a three-stage drama surrounding the forgiveness of God. With the first stage being that forgiveness is granted. And we're in narrative, so we're going to just watch this play out and see what is it like as God extends forgiveness, as, as in this particular case, Jesus extends forgiveness. And what can we learn from that? Mark chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And so we need some context here because we're just jumping into chapter 2. Chapter 1 has happened. So what happened in chapter 1? Jesus called his first disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, John. In chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue with such authority that the people are astounded and along with that, he also casts out a shrieking demon who sends a man into convulsions on the floor. And news spreads about that, which makes sense. Because of the, the healings and, and the exorcisms that Jesus is performing in that area, news about him spreads. And because of those things, in verse 37 and 38, there is such an urgency in the population to see Jesus that he's, he's literally driven out of the populated areas, and he has to go hang out in the wilderness, hang out in the unpopulated areas, and let the people come to him because his presence in the city creates too much of a furor. So he goes, and then he makes the decision as well to, to leave Capernaum and minister to the surrounding villages, and in the midst of that, he heals a leper who is so grateful and who wouldn't be if you just got healed of leprosy? But he's so grateful that he then actually disobeys Jesus' injunction to him. Jesus told him, hey, be quiet about this. Go to Jerusalem and, and go through the ritual cleansing to, to show the priests that you're clean. And instead, the leper just walks around proclaiming the greatness of Jesus and what he's done for him. Um, and as a result of that, Jesus can't even enter a city at all because immediately he's overwhelmed by the people. And so he stays out in the unpopulated areas and they, the people, at the end of chapter 1, were coming to him from everywhere. So Jesus has created a local hullabaloo with all that he did. His miracles, his paradigm-shifting teaching 
He's created such a ruckus, in fact, that he has to avoid all the populated areas entirely because of the press of people wanting to be near him. And so our passage comes some time period. It says we need to come back to Capernaum several days after, which is actually a little more vague than just three days. It's just it's sometime after all this happened, our passage comes into play. Things must have died down as Jesus continued to stay out. The, the, the steady stream of people going to visit the miracle worker slowly dwindled and eventually... Jesus was able to return to Capernaum, which is his home base for ministry. And we find that it was heard, word started to get around, that he was at home. There's, there's maybe too much um, ink spilled on where is home, what is home, is it his home? Um, you know, did, did Jesus actually purchase a place in uh, Capernaum? We know that it was his home base of ministry while he was in the Galilee area. And in chapter 1, verse 29, they came out into the house of Simon and Andrew, <clears throat> and that's where he heals Simon's mother-in-law. So there's probably a good chance that it was Peter's house. Peter lived with his wife and with his mother-in-law and, and eventually kind of some extended family in their home. And so word spreads that Jesus is home. And as a result, verse 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. Now, I'm not sure what you think of when you read about a house in the New Testament times, but it's pretty different from our ranch houses. They're different from our split levels. They're different from our two stories that we have around here. So uh, to give you a a little image, we've got a a couple of slides just so you can get a sense. You can really see how the homes were almost complex type of buildings, generally one story, very small, and very stacked in amongst each other. The roads were narrow between them. Go ahead and go to the next one, Ginger. And you can see the actual lay of how those rooms um, played out. A family would start a house, and then as other family members came together, they would kind of build a room onto the the family complex. That's why Peter would have lived with his mother-in-law, not because he was a dependent, immature punk, but because that's just what they did. And so they would have built a, a room on there. And so Jesus probably had a room added on to uh, that housing complex as well. And these rooms generally weren't very large, maybe seven by 10 on an average basis, so 70 square feet. And the door in this scenario, as you can also see in, in some of those pictures, opened right into the narrow street outside. So there, there, are, there they are, most likely maybe four to five dozen people. That's conjecture. Four to five dozen locals crammed in like sardines. Many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. They were jammed into the room. They were blocking the doorway, even beyond the entry into the alley. It it was was maxed out capacity. And I'm sure if you've been in close quarters like that, that you know that there was probably a, a nice odor permeating everything from the day's work and... Uh, a little, little bit, little bit, little bit of um, personal space being violated. What, what were all those people there for? I don't like close quarters. I don't know about you. I don't like to be pressed in and to be unable to 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 move and unable to have my freedom. But these people were driven to be into that kind of a of a proximity with one another. Ginger, you can go to the next one. And what was Jesus doing? He was speaking the word to them. We see the response to his teaching in chapter 1. They were astounded, amazed. They said, what is this? 
a new teaching with authority. I'm sure the people who were gathered here in this case, they were hoping for some miracles as well, because that would have been pretty cool to be able to see. But they were gathered for his teaching. Jesus was speaking the word to them, and his teaching alone was a tremendous draw for these people. It was something that blew their minds, that revolutionized their thinking unlike anything they had heard before. It had, it had authority like they had not sensed or heard from the scribes, the Pharisees, the local teachers. And frankly, this teaching, him speaking the word, was Jesus' priority one. In chapter 1, verse 38, we see that Jesus says, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby because too many people were pressing on him. Too many people were wanting him to do, to do deeds. He says, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Jesus is doing here in our passage what he came for. He's speaking the word to them. The word, which we find through the gospels to be the word of repentance, the word of the at-handness of the kingdom of God. And with that, the injunction to respond appropriately, to repent, to acknowledge God, to acknowledge man's place before God in repentance for sin, to respond correctly to that. And this is what Jesus is doing. And the crowd, the crowd is eating it up. They're hanging on every word, listening to the words as they come out of the, this, this miracle worker's mouth when a commotion begins in the back of the throng. Verse 3, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. So there they are. Jesus is teaching. The people are listening intently. And four men come up carrying a man on a stretcher. These four men bring a friend in need to the one they know can address that need. He's a paralytic. He can't do anything. He can't move. He can't help himself. He cannot address his own weakness or need. And so four of his companions assist him. They carry him on a pallet to Jesus, only to find their way utterly blocked by that sardine press of people that we just talked about. Are these friends deterred? No. Their paralytic friend has a need, and the answer to that need is through those people. They got to get him there. Necessity begets creativity, and so they get creative. Most houses in those days had a stairway that led up to the roof going from the outside. The roofs were fairly, were fairly multifunctional. They would go up on the roof to bathe. They would go up on the roof to escape the stuffiness of the house in the, in the, in the hotter days. They would go up on the roof to, to pray, to meditate, to take a nap, just to kind of get out of the, 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 the close quarters, as we saw in those houses. So it was, not, uh, it was not untypical for people to have easy access to the roof. So the guys say, look, we can't get through these people. We need to get our friend to Jesus. And so they go up the stairs. And the roofs were typically flat. So these four men carrying another, so the weight of five men, okay, up on a roof. But now the crowd is not between them and the healer. The roof is between them and the healer. It's no problem. Can't get over it. Can't get under it. Can't get around it. 
Got to go through it. Roofs in those days were often made with, with cross-hatched beams and sticks. And then there would be tiles placed on top of those. And then there would be a, a caking of some sort of mud concoction to kind of seal it off. Nothing a little elbow grease couldn't handle. So these men, these four friends, go to it. And literally, they dig an opening right through the roof, right over Jesus. So put yourself there in the midst of that moment. Okay, you got people crammed in, no room, no room for movement, no room for anybody else, even, even, to, even to shimmy and shoulder their way through there. Just no room. The majority of them are standing. We find that some of them are sitting, some of the more important people. But most of them are standing, crammed in like sardines, and Jesus is speaking, and there's this hush of, in, of intent expectancy as he does so. And then some rustling happens in the back as these guys, they, they, they approach the crowd, and they, 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 they make an attempt, they're rebuffed. They make an attempt, they're rebuffed, and then they say, okay, we've got to go up. And so then there's these thumping steps as the guys go up the stairs and up on the roof, boom, 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 four men walking, carrying a heavy load up on the roof. And then some scraping noises come. Maybe a few pebbles start to fall onto the heads of the people below, showering them. Then you got some bigger scraping noises, some grating and crunching as hardened mud is broken through. And then a shaft of sky is seen through, through, the, through the ceiling. I would imagine at that point that Peter is telling his wife, Honey, call the insurance agent. We're going to be making a claim. Because this is a big hole that they end up punching through. They say they lowered a pallet. So a hole big enough to put a man laying down on a pallet through. And in the midst of his teaching, in the midst of his communication, these guys punch through the roof, remove the tiles, move the sticks, and lower a pallet with a paralytic on it. What a moment! They've destroyed the ambiance. They have just obliterated the atmosphere of the teaching, and I'm sure they've perturbed particularly the, the, the scribes and, uh, as we find out in, in Luke's account, the Pharisees who were there. Very important. And here they are getting showered with sticks and, 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 and dirt and clay, and everybody's combing that out of their hair. But these men have also created quite a buildup. Can you imagine being there, listening to this teaching, and then having all of that happen, and sitting there just wondering, what is going to happen now? Seeing the pallet with a paralytic lowered through the roof, way better than the local Friday night harp and lyre concert. So you've got to imagine the thoughts of the crowd. There's going to be a healing. I mean, we've seen Jesus do this with a, with a, with a leper. We've seen demons cast out, but a paralytic just stop and think about a paralytic and what it would take to heal a person who was immobile. Verse 5. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, the crowd waits, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. That might be more puzzling to us at this point in time than it may have been to those folks back in that day. 
Because our first thought is, of course, and my first thought when I read this was, <laughs> what does that have to do with a guy who's get, a paralytic who's gotten lowered through, obviously requiring and needing healing of his body? But in the Old Testament mindset that Jesus was operating within, there was a strong connection between sin and sickness, between forgiveness and healing. Psalm 103, verse 3, it praises God as the one who pardons all your iniquity and in a parallel fashion who heals all your diseases. If you think of the psalmist who, being burdened by his sin, his body is wasting away, he's being borne down, physically affected by his sin. And the cultural understanding of Jesus' day naturally associated hardship with sin. In John 9, the disciples and Jesus come upon a blind man And the disciples' question to Jesus is, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he would be born blind? It's illustrating their understanding in that that Old Testament kind of framework of the the Mosaic Covenant that that obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings, brings hardship and cursing. And so somebody must have done something wrong for this man to be born blind. That's the understanding of the day in many ways. But that notwithstanding, it is denied by Scripture and by Jesus that there is necessarily a connection between sin and between suffering. There's not necessarily a direct connection between the two. It's not denying the possibility, but it's not saying that every time you see a sick person, there is sin. Because Jesus' response to his disciples answers that question. He says it's not a result of sin, but it was so that God, the works of God might be displayed in him. So we find that God had sovereignly said, this man will be born blind, so that when Jesus heals him, God's mighty works will be displayed. And that was it. So maybe this man, this paralytic who was lowered through had led a debauched life that led to this malady. Maybe he'd acquired some disease that struck him with paralysis. Maybe he was just born that way. Maybe he had been an upstanding citizen and he'd gotten in an accident and been hurt. We don't, we don't really know. And frankly, I don't think that Mark intends for us to know the connection, to know it explicitly, because his point in this passage is not the connection between sin and sickness. Rather, his focus is the forgiveness that Jesus offered and the fact that he offers it. We know from the Bible that forgiveness is offered in light of faith. And the same thing here, seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So I think he sees the faith of both his friends and himself himself being the paralytic. This is a faith that's evidenced not by lips, but by lives. The willingness of these five men to go through such great lengths to get to Jesus evidences such an absolute dependence and an absolute uh, willingness to cast themselves entirely upon the power of, of, of Jesus. They're entirely focused on the person of, of, of Jesus, and so he grants an even greater gift to the faithful men than his simple physical healing. He grants spiritual healing. After all, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits his soul? In this case, what will it profit a man to regain the function of his body if he forfeits his eternal health and well-being, his eternal happiness and wholeness? And so Jesus marks out for us the priority of forgiveness. 
On the surface, men think that physical wellness is the end goal. But underneath each man is a disease called sin. Underneath each one of them, underneath one, each one of us is a disease called sin that separates unholy man from an unholy God and brings condemnation from God the judge upon man the accused. And without forgiveness, this disease assures each person that maybe after 60, maybe after 90 years, eternal punishment for those sins will come. And so that's the importance of forgiveness. It is eternal healing and meets the greatest need of every man. And so Jesus grants that forgiveness. But that forgiveness is contested. Look at verse sixes, 6 and 7. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We see their dubious listeners, indeed, incensed hearers. And aren't they right? <laughs> Who can forgive sin but God alone? We are commanded to forgive one another, but that forgiveness doesn't actually absolve guilt in, in one another's lives. That forgiveness frees us, the forgiver, from the grips of bitterness over wrongs done to us. It gives us the opportunity as well to rejoice in the forgiveness of God that he has extended to us. But we cannot actually absolve one another of guilt. That is God and God alone who can do that. And the scribes, learned men of the scriptures, they were the lawyers, the ones who knew the law so well. They knew the right doctrine. They knew that forgiveness, the absolution of sins, was a right and privilege that belonged to God alone. I mean, I would probably respond in a similar way, wouldn't you? Imagine you're sitting in someone's house, you're having a meal, or you're, just, you're, you're talking, you know, watching the royals, and, and this guy turns around and says, hey, by the way, Brother, your sins are forgiven you. <laughs> what? Who gave you that right? They pronounce your sins forgiven, you'd scoff at them. No priest, no pastor, no mere man can forgive sins. We don't have that right. We don't have that authority. We don't have that prerogative. And yet, Jesus didn't explicitly say, I forgive your sins. But he speaks in what's called the divine passive. Your sins are forgiven. Making a proclamation in the tone of God. When he proclaims the paralytic sins forgiven, Jesus claims the authority to speak on behalf of God and as God. And the scribes understand that. And they inwardly argue his ability to forgive sins. Their hearts are stirred up, and their posture and faces must have reflected their outrage. An outrage such that led to their condemnation of him in their heads as being worthy of death. Blasphemy deserves death. In the Old Testament context, Leviticus, Leviticus 24, 16 says, The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And blasphemy is best understood as speech that defames or denigrates or degrades, slanders the person being spoken of. In relation to God, blasphemy either says untrue things about God and thus hacks away at his character, or 
it attributes things that should only be attributed to God to other people, thus diminishing God's glory. And this, the second one, is what the scribes are infuriated over. They, they see Jesus as diminishing God's glory by saying, in essence, I proclaim your sins forgiven. If God is not the only one who can forgive sins, then God's glory is grievously injured. And can we really fault the scribes for that? They're trying to protect the glory of their God, and so, so they contest that forgiveness that, that Jesus is, is giving. But in their inner arguing, they bring about the possibility of shifting paradigms. Can Jesus forgive sins? He's claimed to. And they see that. And Jesus does not try to escape it. He does not try to say, hey, whoa there, guys. Relax. That wasn't me. Okay? I didn't really mean to say I was. You know, He doesn't try to explain it away. So if God alone can forgive sins, as stated in Scripture, and Jesus can rightly claim to do the same thing, that's a game changer. Because this is a flesh and blood man standing before the scribes and the Pharisees and the people crowded around that house. This is a, this is a guy that, that many of them have seen walking around for, for a period of months now. And so Jesus responds to them and their inner debate. And we see this forgiveness is confirmed. Verse 8, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? This, to me, would be step one of, of the confirmation of Jesus' ability. Right? Jesus knows their hearts. They don't say anything. This was, a, this was an argument they were having within themselves. And Jesus knows their struggles and their turmoil over the claim, even though they didn't verbalize it. And who can do that? Who can read minds? Who can know the hearts of men? God. God alone. Psalm 139, 1-2 attributes this ability to God as well. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. My thoughts. We are open books to God. Our innermost struggles, our innermost debates, our innermost issues, thoughts, motives, feelings are open. Open to the Lord. Jesus pronounces this man's sins forgiven, and the scribes erupt within. So he turns, and he focuses on them and addresses their hearts. That must have been kind of an abrupt awakening for them. You know, he says this, and then they're, they're in, their, in their hearts going, Man, I just don't want to. and suddenly he goes, guys, why? Why are you reasoning this way? What? How'd you know that? Especially when Jesus then proceeds to offer the chance to confirm his claims via an argument from greater to lesser. Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. You see what he's doing? Both of these things are obviously works of God and God alone. 
God is the one who forgives, and God is the one who heals paralytics. But clearly, it's easier to say one over the other. Because to say, son, your sins are forgiven you, that, that's, that's a little hard to verify. You can't pull out your, your, your ledger from your pocketbook and go, oh, hey, look, his sins are gone. You, know, you, just, you just can't do that. However, to say, as Jesus suggests here, to say to a paralytic, get up, pick up your pallet and walk, go home. That's immediately verifiable. If the, if the paralytic gets up and picks up his pallet and he walks home, well, there's something to what Jesus has to say. But if the paralytic remains on the bed, then this guy's a fraud. He's got nothing. It's very similar to the faith healers of today who, if you'll notice, they, they often tend to focus on the, 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 the hidden illnesses, the inner hurts and pains, that old shoulder injury, the pain in the pancreas, these recurring headaches that, that ebb and flow, you know, maybe, maybe, a, maybe a newfound case of cancer. But how do you verify that in the moment, upon the pronouncement? They do that type of thing for the momentary wow effect, since the results can't be verified. And then they can move on before they've got accountability. It's much harder for the faith healers of today to take a wheel-bound chair, wheelchair-bound person like Johnny Erickson Tata, for example, and mend her body, enable her to stand, to walk, and to carry her own purse. How her heart longed for that. Listen to Johnny Erickson Tata's testimony back in the, uh, the Strange Fire Conference. She says this, how, how many here remember her, a lady named Catherine Coleman? Well, for those of you who might not remember, she was like the Benny Hinn of the day, okay? Well, my sister and I, this was after she had gotten paralyzed, got into the, the station. She was a, a full quadruple paraplegic, okay? Got into the station wagon, and we got to the Washington Fulton Ballroom early. We wanted to have a good seat. We were escorted, however, over to the wheelchair section where I was sitting with a number of people, Canes, crutches, walkers, wheelchairs. We all waited in anticipation. The lights dimmed. A spotlight came on the stage, and there came Miss Coleman, sweeping out onto the stage in her long white gown with a crescendo of organ music. There are songs and hymns, and before you know it, after some time, the spotlight moves to the far corner of the ballroom, and we can tell something's going on over there, like, like people getting healed. Are they getting healed? Are they getting healed? And we're just waiting for the spotlight to come over to the wheelchair section saying, come over here where all the hard cases are. But the faith healer wouldn't approach her, wouldn't approach that section because her inability to heal would be exposed. And Jesus acknowledges the inability to verify the forgiveness he's just proclaimed. And so he offers them a verifiable proof instead if he can heal the paralytic, what man can do that? Only God can do that. If Jesus can heal the paralytic, then his claim to forgive sins will be ratified. An argument from the greater difficulty to the lesser difficulty as far as verifying. Two acts only God can do, forgive and heal. If the one can be accomplished, then strength is given to the other. 
credence is given to the claims for the other. And Jesus makes that clear in verse 10. He says, but, so he just says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up, take up your pallet and walk, go home. And then he says, but, so that you, the scribes specifically, but everybody included, but so that you may know what? Know what? That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. He says the hard thing. Jesus unequivocally states his objective. He wants them to know that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. And in order to drive that point home, he turns his awesome healing power to the paralytic, to the hard case. He refers to himself as the son of man, most likely an allusion to Daniel 7, where it says the one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. This is a potent title that Jesus ascribes to himself and it's one of his favorite titles for himself. It's a little less controversial than to call himself Messiah at that point would have been, but it's potent nonetheless. It puts himself forward as claiming the authority of God and having the power of God delegated to him by the Almighty himself. So Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus, the Son of Man, says, I can forgive sins now. On earth, before death, before judgment, because then it's too late. There is no forgiveness after death. But at that moment, in flesh and blood, forgiveness is available through the authority of the man speaking to the crowd. And to prove it, he turns to the paralytic and he speaks to him. Get up, he says to the man who had to be carried in. Pick up your pallet, he says to the man whose arms are useless. Go home, he commands the man whose legs are utterly limp. Look at verse 10b. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. There is no process. There is no physical therapy. There is no extended rehabilitation for these scrawny limbs and these powerless core muscles. You know, you've done a really difficult, well, I haven't done one in a while, but a really difficult ab workout, and then you try to get out of bed the next morning and you, you, just, you can't move? Picture being a paralytic who's not used ab muscles in a long time and then trying to get up off a pallet that's on the floor. Bam. Core muscles restored. Legs healed. The man obeys. Muscles are formed. Bones are strengthened. Coordination granted. How long has it been if he ever has walked? And he gets up and without hesitation picks up his pallet and walks out. In the sight of all, <laughs> Luke 9 tells us that he went home glorifying God. I'll bet so. And he wasn't the only one. Verse 12, second half there, it says, so that, 
So the, the, this, this guy just gets healed, picks up his bed, and he walks out on the side of everyone so that, there's, here's the result of his action, they were all amazed, you think? And were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The crowd's reaction, everyone's reaction was amazement and, and attribution of glory to God. They'd never seen anything like this. Capernaum was familiar with Jesus, though. They were familiar with incredible things. Demons coming, shrieking out of men, convulsing on the ground. Lepers covered in sores and oozing nastiness, suddenly being cleansed. They had seen amazing things, but they had never seen anything like this. What's the difference? He proclaimed forgiveness of sins, and he ratified it with an unmatchable work of verification. Had they ever seen that? Never. Matthew's account tells us that they glorified God who had given such authority to man. Oh, they saw the connection. They saw the connection and they gave glory to God because God had given this man authority to forgive sins because look at what he did. If he was a blasphemer and then he tried to do that and he failed, he would deserve death. Indeed, it wouldn't be even be, be uh, out of the realms of possibility for God just to strike him dead if he was false. Such things as this, this ratification of the forgiveness by this miracle, they indicated God's action, God's authority, God's power, God's doing, and the glory is thus given to God. Luke adds that they were filled with fear, which is also understandable. Very similar to the disciples who experienced great fear on the, on the stormy sea when Jesus speaks a word and calms the storm, and they say, what kind of man is this? We've never seen a man like this. No, they haven't. Neither have we. Jesus is unlike any other. Jesus heals diseases. Jesus forgives sin. And the question that spans millennia, the questions that the scribes had to answer, that the crowds had to answer, that you and I have to answer this morning right now, is how will we respond Jesus made a claim to be the one who forgives sins. And he validated that claim and he demonstrated his power to do so in full public. Not a little private session. Full public in view of many people in front of a crowd so that the conclusion was inescapable. How did the people respond? The majority of the scribes, as we find out, grew hardened in their hearts grew embittered towards Jesus' popularity and the fact that he contradicted them, that he chastised them. They grew calloused towards God in the flesh and the forgiveness that he offered. The crowd as a whole was intrigued by him, startled and amazed by him, but neglected to respond in repentance. Think of the loss that they suffered in that moment by not casting themselves at the feet of Jesus and saying, forgive me too. Oh, the weight of, 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 of the forgiveness required by sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year of the blood of, 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 of animals that could never take away sin. And to have the moment of this man 
you could have forgiveness. And they lost so much by not immediately falling before him and beseeching his forgiveness. And today, you and I are confronted with uh, the, the person of Jesus Christ. The man who claims, claimed, and backed it up to be the son of God, born of a virgin, sinless in his life, who proclaimed his power to forgive sins, who purchased that forgiveness through his work on the cross, and then completed that absolute and total victory through his resurrection from the dead. How will you respond? Will you run to him and avail yourself of that forgiveness that is now before you? There is no sin too big. His blood cleanses any sin. There is no sin too far in the past. His forgiveness extends the span of your life, past, present, future. If you have never asked Jesus for forgiveness of sins, never thrown yourself at his feet, beseeching him for that absolution of guilt that only God can give, now is the day of salvation. Don't let it pass you by. You've never seen anything like this. Give glory to God and repent of your sins and be forgiven. Let your guilt be borne away. Let the weight of judgment and condemnation be lifted from you and live in the freedom of God's love to you. And if you've already done that, if you've already repented and been forgiven and now live as a child of God, then cast yourself regularly upon the forgiveness that he so freely offers. He is faithful and just, if we confess our sins, to forgive us of those sins, those, those things that hinder our joy, that stifle our relationship with God, that are blocks to our relationships with one another, uh, between spouses, between parents and children, between friends, between church family members. We can be forgiven of those right now, in the moment, every moment, every time. Cast yourself at the foot of Jesus. Jesus claimed it and proved it. So the question is, how will you respond? If you want to discuss this further or pray with someone, find out more about our church or our Savior, you can come up after we're done here. Talk to me, talk to... I'm not sure who someone will be over there in the prayer room. We'd love to talk to you about forgiveness of sins, the person of Christ, who we are, what we're about. But I urge you, I plead with you, consider Christ and his claim and respond. Respond in repentance. This is a chance, a chance that, that is unlike any you'll get from any other person. Jesus alone offers this. Please stand, let's pray and be dismissed. Lord God, we thank you for making forgiveness available, for sending your very own son to be a man, to die on the cross, to bear the weight of your fury at our sins, to purchase forgiveness, and then to extend that so so freely. Thank you. We praise you. Father, I pray if there are those who have not been forgiven, who have not repented, that you would work in their hearts now. God, and work in my heart to 
to be sensitive to sin, to, to hate sin, to, to see the greatness of the grace offered in Christ and to be so quick to say, forgive me, forgive me. Take away my guilt as you, as you so wonderfully have already even in Christ. Let this church be a forgiving church even amongst one another, extending the forgiveness that you have given us to, to, to each other and saying it's all because of Christ, all because of our Savior. We love you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for our, our Savior and the forgiveness of him, in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.